Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapter 7 this morning from verses 21 through 29. Let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing this morning. Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus right now. And Lord, we want to thank you for your grace towards us, your protection over ourselves and our families, our loved ones. Lord, we pray, let your Holy Spirit guide and direct our assembly this morning. As we gather around your word, Lord, we look to you for wisdom to guide and direct us as your servants. And we pray for your spirit to speak to us, to those here, Lord, those listening over the internet, those far and near. Bless us as your servants, Father, and your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus died for my sins on the cross. He rose from the dead. I am born again. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a follower of the teaching of Jesus Christ. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Good things to say. You realize, of course, that I can say anything. I am the man in the moon. The real substance, the reality of what those words mean, the evidence of them as a fact in my life are things that the Lord understands for certain. I am utterly dependent upon him to help me comprehend the truth that he has invested into my life through his word. The reality of what God is doing in this world, in this nation, in our families, and in our lives as individuals is truly so amazing as to, it really, it's not, it's not a wonder to me that people find it hard to believe when we try and share with them the truth that we've seen from the word of God. It's no wonder that they look at us like we are crazy. I totally understand their problem. In fact, I have to tell you, I remember feeling that way when Christians spoke to me. These people are from another planet. It's difficult for them not to simplify the issue by believing that we, people with the word of God, are the problem. It's those Christians. They ruin everything. What they can't believe or don't want to consider, at least, is that the whole world that they live in is going the wrong direction at the speed of light. That truth is just too terrifying for them to consider. Terrible as it might be, folks, it is nothing when compared with the shock they will experience in the presence of God the Creator as he calls them to account for the truth that they, having every opportunity, the truth they should have known. And so God, who loves us dearly, all of us, not just people in church, all of us, everybody on this planet, he provides warning clearly and plainly to every person, to the unbeliever, but also to the believer. God provides warning to those people who understand the truth, to those who say of themselves, we are the children of God. Warning. The word means to give notice, advice, to intimidate a person to, concerning danger or impending evil, to urge or advise, to be careful, to caution someone, to admonish or exhort as to action or conduct, to notify, to give notice, to give authoritative or formal notice to an individual. I would like to propose to you this morning that the Bible is a book of warning. From Genesis to Revelation, there is scarcely a page upon which men and women are not charged strictly to an awareness and an understanding of the potential peril to which we are born. This is not some unusual thing. This is where we live every day. You might think otherwise, observing how people are shocked and amazed when something terrible happens. You might think that terrible is a rarity. You'd be wrong. 
Terrible happens all the time here. Just wait a minute. You'll see it. Terrible, you see. Terrible is the engine of warning. Without terrible, you don't need a warning. There's no purpose for it. It is the cliff, the thousand foot drop that motivates and compels warning, the encouragement, step back. Or in biblical terms, to take heed to yourself. Part of the process of this warning is motivated by love. In our case, the love of God, a concern to protect those at risk. But at the same time, there is an obligation to justify the truth. Now, you might say truth is always justified and you'd be right. However, the more that you are warned about the truth, the more obligated you become to that truth. Obligated because truth brings responsibility. Knowing the truth in our hearts and in our minds is the thing more than anything else that holds us responsible for our conduct and our decisions. When I know the truth and I choose contrary to the truth to do things that I know are wrong, things that I know are against the truth, I am in rebellion. Now, I can play all kinds of creative and interesting little games with myself. I didn't really understand. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear that part. I didn't know. Was, was that the wrong thing to do? And often, when dealing with people, you can be, this can be very effective. They have no idea what I know or don't know. They don't know what I understand. And even if they think they do, there's always plausible deniability, which is very handy sometimes. However, problem. God knows who I am, doesn't he? He knows what I know. He knows exactly what I know. There is no playing games in the presence with God. There's no creative justification. There are no lies in the presence of God. Only truth and real justice. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day in the wilderness. There is no, I didn't understand, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Failing to hear and respond to God is rebellion. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel tells Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. Folks, that's how it works. We need to listen to God's warning. We need it more than we need to breathe. More than we can imagine. At the same time, in practical terms, if you think about it practically, warning makes terrible unnecessary. It doesn't have to happen. Proverbs 22, 3 says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple go on and are punished. In other words, if I'm warned, I can avoid the problem. So responsibility falls upon the person who is warned. It's where we get the, the phrase, you have been warned. So you recognize, you know, you've been warned. To illustrate the Bible as a book of warning, consider Genesis 2.17, right at the very beginning. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Warning about spiritual death. Deuteronomy 32.47, God speaks through Moses to the children of Israel, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life, and by this word you shall prolong your days in the land. Warning concerning the Bible. The Bible is your life. The incident in 2 Kings chapter 22, during the reign of King Josiah, it seems that they were cleaning up in the temple and lo and behold, the law of Moses had fallen down behind the altar. I don't know how long it had been there, but when they discovered it, they were shocked. What's this? They read it, scared them to death. The king tore his clothing. He goes on to say, Actually, in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book 
that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This, of course, shortly before the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the entire nation. Folks, we have been warned. We are being warned. We will be warned yet again. If there is anything that God is good at, and he's good at just about everything, he is good at providing warning to his people. And if you have any doubts about it, read the book of Jeremiah. Over a period of more than 50 years, God warns the nation. People, on the other hand, people are not very good at being warned. We are distracted and confused from the seriousness of our situation. Like, uh, like the, uh, the band on the deck of the Titanic. As the ship is listing, they're trying to keep people from panicking. I mean, if there was ever a good time to panic, that would have been it. Or people, you know, looking for the light at the end of the tunnel only to find it's the engine of an oncoming train. For us to understand warning, we need to understand the perspective of God, his, his view for our lives. We need to understand his word, don't we? So important. He doesn't want that we should be caught up with worry about the things of the world. And he tells us that again in the Sermon on the Mount. In uh, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Those things are more likely to be a distraction to me from the real issues. What, what does God want me to be concerned about? Luke 21, 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. you be distracted. With carousing, let's see, we might translate that partying. And drunkenness, that would be drunkenness. We understand that one. And the cares of this life, the cares of this life would be what we just read. Matthew 6, 25. That that day might come upon you unexpectedly. Okay, that day is something God wants me to be concerned about. That day is a thing he does want us to be aware of. And that particular day... That is to come to each of us. We will stand before the Lord. We will answer for our lives. Primarily concerning our attachment to Jesus Christ. The one who has purchased us from the judgment to come. And this is something that shows up in the lives of people that are attached to Jesus. Common things that show up in the lives of people that are attached to Jesus. John 8, 31 Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. John 8, 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come and make our home with him. To the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice the connection there. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Goes together. This day, the day of the Lord, stretching from the rapture of the church to the end of the thousand year millennial reign. It is the point at which we will answer for the warning that God has given us. I gave you some examples from the Old Testament of God's warning. And I really believe that there is some warning for us on every page of the scripture. And if we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God by its very existence, it is God's warning to us concerning who we are, where we are, where we're going and who he is. And if this is what the Bible is, then we would expect those warnings from the Old Testament to show up when God comes to earth in the form of a human man as Jesus Christ, that he would continue to warn people. And he does. He does. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount because Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the multitude, he went up on the mountain. He was seated. His disciples came to him and he taught them. 
Some of the things Jesus speaks in this section of Matthew 5 to Matthew 7 are things that he refers to again and again at different times in his ministry. You'll find them represented in the other Gospels, sometimes in a different context. Jesus traveled constantly, folks. These things were important, and it was important that people needed to hear them. And so many of these themes and even the specific references Jesus spoke of again and again. They're packed with an amazing insight to God's view of human conduct and accompanied with his warning that we need to hear. It's the end of this message that we're going to look at today as Jesus teaches his disciples from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through verse 29. In three different sections. First of all, the warning against pretense. Don't play games. The warning against negligence. Don't be foolish. And thirdly, the warning against experience. Do not follow men. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like people we live with every day, what you might see on MTV. But he goes on in verse 5, 2 Timothy 3, 5. And this is very important. Having the form of godliness, but denying its power from such people turn away. The power of godliness is God. It's the Lord. Any person with a form of godliness that is divorced from the truth of God is a problem. First, they're a problem to themselves, and then they're a problem to any other person. No matter how nice it looks, and trust me, it can look really nice. This is where the religious leaders of Jesus' day lived, and many people today. So number one, the warning against pretense. Pretense. From verse 21 through 23, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Matthew seven twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus covers a lot of ground in the Sermon on the Mount. We find this statement coming right on the heels, directly following the encouragement to self-examination, direction in seeking God's blessing in chapter 7, and wisdom concerning deception in men. As in verse 16, 716, he says, you will know them by their fruits. So on the first glance, there's nothing very startling about the Lord's statement here. It's not what you say you believe or even what you think you believe, but what the objective evidence of your life proves about what you actually do believe. What you truly believe will show up in how you live. You are what you do. Like Fruit is a natural outgrowth of your life. It's going to happen. It just happens. It's fruit. It's a natural outgrowth. At the same time, as people, folks, we are so concerned for what other people think of us. Now, you may say of yourself, I don't care what anybody thinks. If you do a serious examination of yourself, you're going to find that's not true. Maybe there are a lot of people that you don't care what they think, but there are some people out there that you truly care what they think of you. And unfortunately, we would like people to believe things about us that are not true. We would like people to think that we're smarter than we are. We would like people to think that we're more spiritual than we are. We would like people to think that we're better looking than we are. That's a hard sell. Maybe you would like people to think that you're more spiritual than you are. And and you think that if you act spiritually the way that you think spiritual 
acts like, it will happen. This is a problem. We've been engaged in this kind of activity since the time we were small children. We want people to think of us in a certain way. And we learn very young that if you act a particular way, people treat you differently. And so maybe we don't lie about ourselves, but we do represent ourselves in a certain perspective. Now, just take that idea to its logical conclusion. In a whole world full of going on 8 billion people working to represent themselves as better than they really are, unless they've had a couple of drinks, maybe, hoping that this pretending will stick, that it will change them, or at least that other people will think of them the way they want to be thought of. Folks, you have lived all your life in a culture that values appearance more highly than substance. People don't care about what it is. They care about what it looks like. Nothing good can come from that. It's broken. Hypocrisy is such a common thing in the human condition, we should call it normal. So much so that there are people that to all the world look to be the example of the Christian life and they are not. Remember this when you hang out with Christians or when you hire a Christian to work for you. Remember this. We all see the high-profile leaders of some national ministry that are caught up in some shady business and discredited. The really sad thing, the really sad thing is a few months go by and they're starting up a new ministry work in Arizona or wherever. That tells us a lot about them as an individual. But I'm afraid it also tells us more about the people of this country. That there is no expectation. There is no expectation of integrity in people who lead. And that should tell you that the people will follow a dishonest person willingly. Think about that for a couple of minutes. Compromise is everywhere and accepted as almost virtuous because our expectations have been so depreciated and scoffed at. The idea of integrity and real character have been satirized and insulted in the public consciousness so effectively as to make a reference to real character as something to be ashamed of. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say character? I meant uh, intellect. There, intellect's a real thing. Like character is not a real thing. Just something that people pretend at. And if you pretend to have character and integrity, then something must be deeply wrong with you. You need this moral superiority to look down on the rest of us. Scary. Not only is this kind of attitude commonplace, it has been an issue of indoctrination in the Western world. It has become the way that people think without being instructed. It's the culture's default position. And the worst thing, the worst thing is, it's not simply how we look at others. It's how we justify ourselves. The world we live in is a crazy place, folks. It's like this huge puzzle that men cannot figure out until you bring it into the presence of God and then suddenly every detail is plain and clear and the actions and the intentions of men are revealed. Psalm 73, verse 16, David writes, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. Surely the people of this world are like that. They're subject to twisted and confused influences of culture. But believers are supposed to be different, aren't we? The followers of Jesus are supposed to be different. We are subject to the Spirit of God. And his word. And look, look at what Jesus says in verse 22. He says, many. He didn't have to say that. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
This has got to be one of the most shocking passages in Scripture. The reason being, we all want to point to our outward works as the evidence of our faith in Christ. Did these many people, did they actually do miraculous works? Well, first of all, let's be clear about this. Only God does miracles. People do not do miracles. God does miracles. Only God casts out demons. Only God directs words of prophecy. They're his words, after all. Only God does signs and wonders. People just happen to be there while God is working. And he is gracious enough to allow them to pray and ask and direct his efforts. He does the work, plain and simple. Secondly, consider the person of Judas Iscariot. Judas, most likely, according to what we see in the scripture, was present when God did miracles. Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus calls the twelve to himself and sends them out two by two, six groups. They went out and preached the gospel that people should repent. They cast out many demons, anointed with oil those who were sick, and healed them. Okay, it doesn't say, and Judas also healed people. No, it doesn't doesn't say but it doesn't say and for some reason judas prayed and nobody got healed the the perspective the intent what we can see in the scripture is he was included with the 12 jesus is showing us right away here in matthew chapter 7 that we can't point to spiritual gifts or supernatural works as an evidence of spirituality as an evidence of being truly connected to christ just because People do great works does, is not an endorsement from God of who they are. Well then, gracious, how do we know about people? We listen to the Lord. We look at the scripture. We pray. We wait on the Lord. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. But notice here, Jesus is just not saying that people are not spiritual. He's saying in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He identifies them as those who practice lawlessness. Pretty terrible coming from Jesus. What does 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 say? Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, The Greek language in 1 John there is saying the the practice of sin, the habitual practice of sin is lawlessness, a lifestyle of practicing sin. Beyond the really terrible part here, I declare to them, I never knew you. Two things. First, it raises the issue of people who have never been born again doing works in the name of the Lord, great works and other lies. And honestly, I'm not surprised at this. I guarantee you there are people who get saved to come to real faith in in Christ who are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 watching people on television who are not born again. I guarantee you this happens every single day. Men and women preaching on television and on the radio who are not believers in Christ and people who hear them come to real faith in Christ. And what greater miracle is there than salvation? Secondly, you have to wonder, the person to whom Christ is speaking, do they truly have no idea that they're not believers? Whatever their situation, these are the people that you don't want to be. Now, we know from the scripture, God is just. Is it just for God to condemn people who don't understand why they're being condemned? No. God is just. Because God is just and faithful, these people reasonably, practically should have known, should have recognized their failure. Again, the problem with people is you can never underestimate the ability of a person to rationalize their situation. Do you think people lie to you? Some people quite a lot. You should hear the whoppers they tell themselves 
terrifying, dwarfs the imagination. When I speak to a person, I cannot tell them, okay, listen, you've been playing this game in your head. You've been rationalizing your failure. You know the truth, don't you? Because they will look at me with those big deer eyes and say, no, what are you talking about? However, God can do it, and he does. The uh, reference to the gift of prophecy, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, verse 24. God says, if all prophesy in the church, an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, convicted by all, and thus the secrets of the heart will be revealed. Now, people don't do that. God does it. It's his word as it goes forth. And he does it here in Matthew chapter 7. But this, folks, this is not corrective. He's talking about the day of the Lord. It's punitive. It's a reference to God's judgment upon these people. To us as believers, the scriptures speak so clearly and warn us. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there is in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You see, folks, we have this problem. We forget who we are. We start to believe the lies that we tell ourselves. We become blind to our failures and our frailty. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? You see, these people that Christ is talking to in chapter 7, these many, if they thought they were believers, that really bothers me. I can't have an artificial idea about who I am in the sight of God. There's way too much at stake. In Romans chapter 12, at the beginning of the chapter, the Apostle Paul begs us by the mercies of God to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And the purpose to that is that we might understand the will of God. But in Romans 12, 3, he says, I say to you through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus suggests that we consider ourselves unprofitable servants. And that's after we've done what we're supposed to do. We all want to be confident in our connection to the Lord. And in verse 24, 25, 26, and 27, here in Matthew 7, He's going to give us the key to eternal security. And no, it's not the idea that once you've prayed to receive Christ, you can't walk away. That is not eternal security. He's going to give us the key to seeing ourselves as we truly are in the scripture. And so he warns us against negligence in verses 24 through 27. You know, when a person, crazy or otherwise, makes an attempt to climb Mount Everest. Generally, they realize that it is a very serious thing that could, even with the very best planning and preparation, end in their death. The death rate on Mount Everest has not changed since 1922, with about one death for every 10 successful ascents. So for every 10 people that actually make it to the summit, one person dies. For anyone who actually reaches the summit, from that point forward, they have about a 1 in 20 chance of not making it down again. That's how dangerous it is. Needless to say, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, it's all business. Very serious. And you had better have your affairs in order before you start. We may be crazy, but we're not stupid. Some things you have to take seriously. You have to count the cost. You cannot not be negligent. Well, actually, you can be negligent. 
but it's very expensive. God, the Creator, has set before every human person, like it or not, we are in this crazy mixed up world. He has provided us amazing evidence of His existence in the natural world, in nature as we look at it. And I truly believe that the more advanced our scientific abilities become, if they're not twisted by ideological prejudice, it becomes harder and harder to deny the fact that we live in a created universe and that we, in point of fact, we are created beings. And if we are created beings, we are therefore responsible to an intelligent creator. Beyond that, he has provided us with directly inspired scripture in, in his word in the Bible. That amazingly, I mean, amazing, it has, by his spirit, can restore us to a connected fellowship if we choose to put our lives in his hands. There are no half measures, folks. There are no, I, I kind of believe in God. No such thing. The only relationship that God offers, the only relationship he could ever offer is the relationship where you're you and he's God. It has to be on his terms. There's no other way to proceed. It's on his terms or, or not at all. No, no deal. And so here in verses 24 through 27, Jesus lays out for us one of the important details of that relationship in a parable. Matthew 7:24 says, "Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock." He starts off, "Therefore, Okay, and basically, as he begins with therefore, what that means is that he's linking these comments with the things that he said just previously. Okay? He is continuing from the subject of warning people against their own inclination to just go through the motions of a relationship and not to do the will of God in their lives sincerely. He makes a comparison. The person that hears his words and does them, is compared to a person with wisdom. One that builds his house upon a rock. The house suffering rain and flood and wind, and yet without loss, because it is founded on the rock. And the point is, you want to be wise. Do what Jesus says. Do you want to avoid difficulty and loss in your life? Do what Jesus says. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, it's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Notice, work, doer. This one will be blessed in what he does. Notice, self-deception is natural condition for people. It makes us feel comfortable. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you will meditate in it night and day that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have Good success. Proverbs chapter 7 verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. And he doesn't mean keep them in your pocket. He means keep them by doing them. John chapter 13 verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A little different perspective. In the last will and testament of the apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now, what is the pattern of sound words? It's what we do. 
That is the pattern. And on and on. I could honestly, no exaggeration. I could spend the rest of the daylight hours here quoting from the Old New Testament verses that charge us in a variety of ways and contexts to do what the Bible says very plainly and clearly. And so often the encouragement is connected with some promise like Joshua 1.8. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. John 13.7. Then you will be blessed in, in them. In Jesus' parable, it's about the house surviving. But again, because he's connected this with his previous comments in verses 21, 22, and 23, where those that fail are to depart from him, it's not about some building survival, is it? It's about your survival with Jesus. With Jesus, you survive. Without him, not so much. In verse 26, we get the side of the story that is a contrast. In verse 26, he says, Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man, built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So we we start the same. Everybody hears the truth. But this person who does not follow the Lord's direction, and this person is like a foolish man, the contrasting comparison, he gets the same storm. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house. The exact same difficulty with a totally different outcome. The storm is really an interesting metaphor. You know, I, again, I was thinking back as I was reading this yesterday about the, the uh, storm in Houston, Texas, and a uh, number of people that died terribly. You know, I, I looked at, I realized there was, there was terrible flooding in Dallas and the Fort Worth area uh, in, in 2015, the year before, where some 20, 20 some people died in the floods. What a terrible thing. And then, of course, you know, the situation with the, uh, the police ambush, and, uh, you know, we have. Uh, friends, close friends from the church that live in Dallas-Fort Worth, the Ober family and their loved ones, uh, our sister Tamar and the rest who moved to Dallas-Fort Worth. And, you know, I just, my heart goes out to them and and uh, these families. And, you know, again, I, I hope that you're you're praying for these people and for law enforcement people. You know, folks, law enforcement is such a difficult job. And I just want to pray that the Lord would have his hand upon every one of these people that Obviously, that they would represent the Lord with what they do. I pray that people in law enforcement come to faith in Jesus. They so need his help and his direction. Because if they do not walk according to the word of God, they're not going to make it through the storm. And those that don't, unfortunately, they will suffer. Earlier, we were talking about the day of the Lord and the Apostle Paul makes an interesting comment, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, talking about God's judgment coming upon the earth, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't you think that's interesting? He's addressing two different groups of people here. Those who do not know God. Okay, okay, I get that. And those who do not obey the gospel. How... Do you know God and not obey the gospel? People are very creative. But the truth is, I don't really want to know. I don't know. I don't want to know how that happens. Psalm 119.92, unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. You're going to have affliction. This is going to sustain you through it. It's so difficult talking to young people sometimes, high school kids and junior high school kids, because some of them have never gone through terrible hardship in their life. When you talk to them about going through a hardship that is greater than you can endure, they don't understand what you mean. They don't really get it. But they will. They will get it. They will see it. Because hardship comes to all of us. You folks have been through difficult times. I know some of you that have dealt with cancer. 
You've lost loved ones. Some of you are dealing with really, really terrible things here today. And, you know, things that maybe you haven't shared with anybody that are greater than you can endure. But God is faithful. In in the Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 68, Simon Peter answers Jesus and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But if you don't do his words, if you just hear them, they're not the words of eternal life. And I think you can agree, if the Lord has spoken to your heart from the scripture, nothing else can ever compare. Like the people who heard Jesus on this day, you understand the warning against experience in verses 28 and 29. I realized yesterday that it was 40 years ago this week that I first sat down to read the Gospel of John. And I think it's safe to say that I have never been the same, just like the people who heard Jesus on this day. In verse 28, and so it was that when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. One of the things that you might experience is a curiosity as to whether others heard the same thing that you did. You know, when you're astonished at something, that's kind of the response. I was watching a basketball game with my son yesterday, and as occasionally happens at the end of a basketball game, there was... With one second left, somebody made a shot and won the game. And we're both sitting there watching, and my son jumps up and down. He's, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see that? Did you? And I'm sitting in the room. I'm watching the game. Of course I saw, but, but you know, people get excited when they're astonished. And they say, you know, like, I'm, I would think these people, did you hear what I heard him say? Did you hear that? The, I've never heard anything like that. You know, and you want other people to say, yeah, I've never heard anything like that either. Most amazing. And when you hear the word of God, when God speaks to you by his Holy Spirit, it is like nothing you've ever heard before in your life. This is what changes the lives of people to hear God speak to them directly. And I got to tell you, there are people who come to church here who have never heard God speak to them directly. You cannot get along without this. You need to get on your knees and ask God to speak to you from the scripture to instruct you specifically and directly for your life. You need this. It will change your life forever. These people were astonished. The only counterpoint they had, the only comparison they could really make was the teaching of the scribes. And say, this is not like the scribes. And they describe it as, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. But now think for a minute, if you were there and you went up to someone who did not hear Jesus speak and you said, he didn't teach like the scribes, he taught like he had authority. Wouldn't it, well, the scribes have authority. What are you talking about? The script, not like Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority is not like the authority that men have. Jesus did not need to quote other people to validate his words. He was not borrowing authority. It was his authority. And I want you to, you know, I know that you've probably read these words many, many times, but I want you to notice something about what Jesus says here. In verses 24 and also in verse 26. Jesus does not stand up before the people on the mountain and say. Everyone who hears the words of Moses. He doesn't say those who hear the words of scripture. Those who hear the words of the Bible and do them. What does he say? He says everyone who hears these sayings of mine. Do you guys realize the authority that he is placing upon himself by telling people that their lives will be saved by doing what he says? No human man could ever do that. No person could ever do that. 
When God speaks to you, there is no other experience that can compare. Because it is what you were created for. You were created to commune with God. And when I, in the first week of July in 1976, picked up a big blue American Standard Bible and read the first chapter of the Gospel of John, I just sat it down and stared at it. I was like, oh my gosh, everything I know is wrong. I am never going to be the same. Because that communication, that was what I was created for. And you can tell. Again, I, I read earlier Deuteronomy 32:47, God's words through Moses to the children of Israel. It is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. A good piece of encouragement for us, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Do people drift away? You know people who have. You know people that walked with Christ. And you have seen them drift away from that truth to the point that you can no longer identify them as the followers of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. Following the teaching of Scripture, following the words of Jesus is very seldom the easiest thing to do. And it's often the hardest. How often does God instruct you to do a particular thing and you think, oh boy, I, was, I wanted to do that anyway. I was just on my way and thank you, Lord. That's what I really wanted to do, you know. God says to you, go marry this gorgeous woman. Yes, Lord, thank you, God. How wonderful, you know. It's interesting, you know. When God told me I was going to marry my wife, I wasn't really interested in her at all. And my response to him was, what did I do? What, I, I'm going to marry this girl? You're kidding. I mean, those of you who know my wife know that I'm the luckiest man who ever walked the face of the earth to be married to her. She's pretty nice. But at the, you know, and, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, it's okay. In a couple of weeks, you're going to think it's a really good idea. And sure enough, it was amazing. <laughs> Often the things that the scripture enjoins me to do are very difficult to me. Will God ever ask me to do something that I cannot do? No. He will not. In fact, if God asks me to do something, he will facilitate, he will direct, he will guide, he will help me in the process of doing it. Look at the life of Jesus, folks. For him to follow the word of God meant to surrender everything. Everything. He had nothing. And then he gave his life under the most, the most horrific circumstances. Jesus Christ was beaten to death and nailed onto a piece of wood. And let me tell you, if you were standing there, it was not glorious to see. It was horrific. But he did it. And look at the difference that it has made for us. It means everything to me. Everything. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13 and verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The word strive there is the work, the Greek word from which we get our word agonize. Struggle. Things, folks, are going to get more difficult for us in this world. You know, I got home from church Thursday night and I saw the news reports and it went on till, of course, obviously after midnight here. You know, terrible situation. And I was shocked, but not shocked. 
because we see the fabric of our culture deteriorating rapidly. I don't know if you heard about this, the law in, in Iowa that took place that the state, and I don't know if it's been signed into law, the state is requiring religious organizations that do public outreach to provide bathroom facilities for all these different designations of people, you know, contradicting perhaps their faith in that situation. And the, the state is going to be totally unconcerned about the requirements and they are going to intrude into our worship. You know, you're going to find that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in um, a minority that is going to be uh, unfortunately mistreated in this current culture. We are going to be identified as the problem of the culture. We are going to suffer the circumstances. And you're going to begin to see the numbers of sincere believers start to thin out in this country. You're going to see that going to take place. You need to be prepared. I read an article last week about persecution in the African nation of Eritrea, which is a pretty horrific place to be a Christian, I have to tell you. There was a meeting, an underground church of 400 people that met, and they were all arrested. And um, they were all subjected to torture. And of the 400 people that were arrested, only 50 of them refused to deny the Lord under those circumstances. And, you know, I don't think, honestly, I don't think I can imagine what going through such a circumstance is like. But folks, begin praying today for people around the world who are suffering persecution. You know, more people are being saved in the Islamic world today than at any time in the history of the world. And most Christians know nothing of this. We have a responsibility we have been informed. We have been warned. Things are going to get more difficult for us. We should expect it. We should expect the numbers of believers to be thinned out. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. It's not a strange thing. It is what we signed on for. It's part of God's calling upon our lives. We want to follow the words of Jesus. We want to follow the word of God. But let me ask you a question. As you leave here today, I want you to hold this in your mind. Your hope to be with Christ, is it really based on your ability to keep the word of God? Is that what your hope is about? Do you hope to do what the word of God says and thereby qualify to be acceptable to him? And the answer is no, that's not right. I hope you keep the work of God. I hope you, you walk in his word every single day. But I want you to remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And listen to what it says. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your head together. Get your thoughts together. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your hope is to be entirely and completely predicated on this undeserved favor that God has offered you. That even though we are unprofitable servants, we might walk into his presence and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Why does God put things in the scripture the way he does? He wants to warn us. We have the warning against pretense. We can't play games. We have the warning against negligence. We can't be foolish. And we have God's warning against experience. We cannot follow men. The Lord is the provider of the direction that we need. He is our deliverer. And all we have to do is to pay attention. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness and your grace towards us today. Father, we're just grateful for the good things that you have brought to us. And your spirit that 
helps us to follow the teaching of Scripture. You know, on our own, Lord, we have no ability. We need your help, Lord. Strengthen our hearts. Father, strengthen us in prayer that we would cry out to you on behalf of those who don't know you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see our responsibility and to be faithful as your servants. As we're praying this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we want to challenge you that as the Lord has spoken to you from the Word of God, take this opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. Hand yourself over to Him that He could begin this amazing work of changing and affecting you in a beautiful way. If you would like to receive Christ as your Savior this morning, I am going to pray a prayer, and it is a prayer of salvation. If you want to commit your life to Christ, repeat these words after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and change my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.